According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4 this morning, dealing with verses 10 through 19. And I believe we are getting ready now to look at verse 14 in this, uh, in this section. Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil. And they are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. All right, these are the verses we're looking at. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, setting aside distractions, humbling ourselves under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this morning. We thank You for Your truth. Thank you for your grace, Father, in sustaining us, watching over us through the storms, through the floods and all the rest, Father. We uh, still have a few church family members we haven't heard from yet, so we give them to you and leave that in prayer. And Thank you for being faithful in, uh, in every respect. We ask for your blessing upon our time this morning, thanking you for your faithfulness. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Uh, we are in the midst of point two. Uh, under point one, we gave a development of verses 1 through 9. The uh, collective address to plural sons uh, jumps out at us in verse 1. Here, O sons, the instruction of a father. Uh, for through the first three chapters, at least, of Proverbs, it was always just singular. My son, my son. Uh, and you would think that uh, Solomon was an only child at that point. But no, he had siblings. And the, uh, the lessons do expand to sons, plural, in a variety of places uh, here in uh, the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 7, and chapter 8 are the four occasions that the expression is expanded to the plural sons. We discussed uh, several other subpoints and in, in aspects of this, and I'm not going to go back and reteach everything we taught here in, in these first nine verses, but I think the nature of how we take the Word of God persuasively and personally is critical that it has to be delivered persuasively and personally, and it has to be received persuasively and personally. That we do, we are persuaded by the Word of God as we receive it. It's not just information, not just knowledge or facts or, or things that we can just absorb passively, passively, but on the, the nature of the Word of God, that it is piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, that God Himself is using His Word to shape who we are and how we live, that the Word of God is supposed to transform us, according to Romans chapter 12, that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that's what keeps us from being conformed to this world or conformed to this age. So we ought to be impacted by the persuasiveness of the Word of God. And as as the Word of God goes forth, it needs to persuade us day by day. If it's not, I would ask, why am I, why am I here? Why am I under teaching? Am I here just to, to learn facts or am I here to be changed? Am I here for my life to glorify Jesus Christ? And so I want to take it personally and I want to take it persuasively. 
And, uh, and I think there's a lot more we could do with lakach. We could do with that particular verb and understand the persuasions of what takes place. There's no question in my mind the world understands it. Satan understands it. He is actively involved in persuading, changing thinking, changing outlooks. And uh, he's quite successful at it, I might add, as far as what public opinion is in any number of different applications. In any event, we had C, D, E, and F, and uh, we discussed under F the nature of the embracing, and we'll talk about that as well as we move forward. Wisdom is embraced as a son to a mother, and that's one form of embracing. In fact, that's a great form of embracing. We want to build the right kind of patterns early. We want to uh, ground our children in the Word of God at the youngest of ages, and uh, not just sons to their mothers, but daughters to their fathers and so forth. If uh, things are adjusted properly there, that's a huge benefit before the next kind of embracing comes about, all right? Uh, that is the adult kind of bracing, embracing, and that's what we'll talk about in the coming chapters. All right, now point two takes us into verses 10 through 19. The middle portion of Proverbs 4 illustrates the point when a son enters his own generational accountability. When a son enters into his own generational accountability, he's leaving home, he's leaving father and mother, he's cleaving to his wife, the two become one flesh. He's stepping forward into his own generational accountability. And he is equipped to do so if the parents have done their job. And right, wrong, or otherwise, the parents are done with the child-rearing stage of parenting when the, the generational accountability takes place. After that, Whatever form of parenting the uh, older generation takes is really more of, a, of, a, of a, an advisory capacity, a counseling role, a, a, a offering advice when requested kind of a thing, and backing off when not requested kind of a thing, and, uh, and different components there. We'll discuss that as well. Your life, your life, that's the highlight here, your life, the years of your life will be many. And the life uh, become, indeed becomes separate when the generation takes place, when the man steps forth. He's going to leave father and mother and he's going, to, uh, he's going to launch forth into his own life. Your life is highlighted in verse 10 as the work of parenting is viewed in its completion in verse 11. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. All right? I've, I have led you in the upright paths. Been there, done that, I'm done. Okay, and that's, we have the completion is what's stressed here. Hebrew, the Hebrew grammar ex- expresses the completed action of the verb. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. So if you depart from that, you've got, only got yourself to blame, all right? If you decide to, to live this other path, you should know better because I've contrasted it for you. And I have led you in the upright path. It's not just teaching. I'm not just preaching at you. I'm not just uh, saying one thing and doing another because my life has matched my message. I have directed you, that's the verbal teaching, and I have led you, that's the conduct of my life. And uh, David and Bathsheba were able to assure Solomon that what it is that, that they're preaching at him is what it is that they are, in fact, living themselves. All right, we talked under point B about when you walk and if you run, under point C about you will not stumble. And that's an interesting point, too, because we have to learn to rightly divide the word of truth. We have to learn to distinguish in the text what is an absolute promise on an absolute basis and then what is a principle 
that applies to life as it generally works. Uh, a principle that obviously has exceptions because there are other principles as well. And principles will always be in tension with other principles. So train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. That is a general principle. And it holds true in most cases, more often than not. All other things being equal, this is true. Children raised on doctrine do better, okay, as a rule as opposed to children that are raised in, in pagan homes or without doctrine or without any kind of grounding in, in the Word of God. As a general true, of course, that's the reality. But we don't claim that as an absolute promise. Why not? Be, well, because it's not an absolute promise, that's right. But because, and here's, the, here's how you can tell, because there are other principles also that apply, such as uh, the principle of sowing and reaping, and you reap what you sow, and volitional accountability, and a child that, that may not act according to how he's been raised. He may make other choices, and we have the freedom to make those choices. And so we watch a child making choices contrary to the Word of God, and what do we do? Because these principles are true, these principles are true, and they are all, they're all true, but they're all in tension one with another. See, that's how we can glean the distinction between an absolute promise. Like when God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. <laughs> okay? There's nothing in tension with that. That is absolute, and there's no other mitigating issue that might, that might be in conflict with that. In any event. So uh, when we see it here in verse 12, when we see it in verse 19, when we see it in other places about not stumbling, generally what we see is we see conditional passages that so long as you walk in the light, you don't stumble, right? But you can't separate that you will not stumble statement from the conditions that statement is connected to, like walking in the light. So if you, if you depart from the light and decide to go walking around in the darkness, don't get all shocked if you stumble. Okay, it's a no-brainer. You're walking in darkness. Of course you stumble. The text also says that. See, and that's, uh, I think, a critical aspect and, and a good thing for us. That's why we're in Proverbs, and there's a lot of it in Proverbs, a lot of it in Psalms, a lot of it throughout the wisdom literature. Wisdom literature takes the, the Torah and puts it into daily life for, for personal application on the part of believers. All right, so we have the, the issues there. This young man is prepared for a new kind of embracing and uh, taking hold, not letting go, and guarding. You enter into adult capacity and you are uh, the one responsible now to have and to hold. You're the one responsible to guard, to defend. That was really Adam's first failure was his omission, the sin of omission and not guarding the garden and allowing the snake in there in the first place and, and uh, permitting his wife to listen to those lies. Other aspects there, all right? Taking hold, not letting go, guarding. We see there's a lot of this. I think in the poetry of this passage, there's an awful lot of this where the, uh, the verbs uh, compound, they multiply. Uh, so when you see take hold, do not let go, guard her, do you see all three of those in verse 11? It's just, it's like a, like a machine gun, right? It's just a staccato of, of, of ex- expectations there. There's going to be more when we get into the, the wrong path in verse 14. Look at all these. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it. Pass on. You're like, okay, already, I get it. I got it five 
imperatives ago. Why do you keep bossing me around like this? Why do you keep saying the same thing four different times in four different ways? Why do you keep redundantly you know, repeating yourself over and over again? What's up with all the repetition? Okay. Well, children need it. <laughs> Knuckleheads need it. Carnal believers need it. Um, we all need it. And so if you can say the same thing five different ways, maybe one of those ways is going to click with the way that people think, right? Just a matter of clicking. And we all click, I think, in different ways. All right, which brings us now to point E. The path of the wicked is a terrible contrast to the path of the righteous. The path of the wicked is a terrible contrast to the path of the righteous. And here we have kind of the, the two ways. Um, Al was asking me about the two ways and different traditions in, in Jewish uh, practice. And, and Proverbs lays it out. There's two ways you can go. There's God's way and there's not God's way. <laughs> right? Which is your way and somebody else's way and Satan's way. And that's, the nature of, of the truth is absolute. The nature of all of these alternatives and lies and all the rest of it, there's no shortage of flavors that you can go when you are departing from the absolute nature of the truth. So you can plunge into Satan's uh, path or the way of the wicked uh, in, in a lascivious manner, in, a, in a, an ascetic manner. If, if pride is your thing and you want to be a, a self-righteous goody-tissue, Satan will take you down that road. He doesn't care. That's fine. If you want to be a, a, a total rebel and, 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 and you know, fornicate all day long, Satan will take you down that path too. He doesn't care. Whatever path, as long as you're not glorifying Jesus Christ and pleasing God the Father, as long as you're not spirit-empowered, Satan doesn't care what form or fashion of rebellion you take. He's fine with any of them, and he can use all of them. So, do not, do not, do not, avoid, do not, turn away, pass on. All of these, there's really five descriptions there. And, and I find it's useful to kind of highlight those and pay attention to recognize that it's not as simple as sometimes it might appear that we might pass the test once and think, okay, we're cool, until the second time we pass by, and then we fall for it, all right? Or the third time, or the fourth time. Or it may be that there's a test, and we've had victory after victory after victory after victory, and we thought, hey, it's no big deal. That's, that's an easy thing to, to uh, until the fifth time or the sixth time. When does it finally wear you down? When does God finally start to lower the hedge to where now you're more accountable than you've ever been before? There's a lot of detail here. So subpoint one. This is main point E, subpoint one now. The directional directives are clear. You might say they're direct. The directional directives are clear. Do not enter. But it doesn't stop with that. That's only the first. Do not proceed. All right, let's say you do enter. Now you're just one step down that path. All right, that's far enough. In fact, get out of there, <laughs> okay? But if you've already failed in the first do not enter, and now you're at the, on the first step of that path, do not proceed, okay? Because it only gets worse. That path is going to take you places you don't want to be. In fact, that path is probably going to take you places you don't expect because the path was misleading at the outset. It looked all pleasant. It looked fun. It looked safe. It looked, you know, hey, this is, this is a great thing to do. And then before you know it, you're, you're, you've gone a direction you had no intention of going. 
But that's the nature of sin. That's the nature of the, the price you pay when you serve the adversary. So do not enter. Do not proceed. Do not proceed. The third step is avoid. And that's even better. Let's assume now that you've, uh, okay, you took that bad step, but then you listen, okay, I'm not proceeding. Well, then just avoid it altogether. Get off that path. Get back on the path you're supposed to be on. Avoid it altogether. That's the third of these directional directives. The first is do not enter. The second is do not proceed. The third is avoid it. Why are you even in that neighborhood? Why, did, why are you even passing that way? If you think about it, if you know that this particular intersection or this fork in the road has that particular path, why are you at that intersection? Why are you at that intersection in the first place? Avoid that part of town. Don't even, you know, don't even be on that side of the river or tracks or um, zip code or whatever. If you know this is a neighborhood that has that kind of stuff, avoid it. Avoid it. The fourth pattern is do not pass by. And the distinction between avoid it and do not pass by, I think a lot of Christians, um, they, uh, they window shop. All right? And they may not intend to do the sin, but if they can watch somebody else do the sin, or they can see it in a movie or see it and read it in a book, or, or uh, they're passing by. They have it within sight. As if it's, uh, it's, uh, it's entertainment. Right, well, we're going to live vicariously. We're not going to do the sin, but um, it's, you know, I'm just curious. What's the, what's, what's the old place look like these days? Why do you even care? Why do you even care? Don't even pass by it. Because all you're doing is making provision for the flesh with regard to its lust. Do not pass by. The, um, the next step, it says turn away turn away, and pass on. When the, the, the passing verbs are interesting. It's the same verb used twice. It's the verb for lever. Uh, it's the word for, he, for Heber. It's the word for Abraham the Hebrew. He's the, the Hebrew is the one who has crossed over or passed by. And uh, the idea of the Hebrews is that wherever it was they came from, it was across the river, <laughs> right? Probably the Euphrates. Uh, that's kind of legendary at that point. Peleg and Heber and some of the the patriarchs that were generations older than Abraham even. Um, But even as late as the time of Joseph, when Joseph was in slavery in Egypt and his brothers came down to buy food, uh, they were referred to as the the Hebrews, the Passerovers. Potiphar's wife said, this Hebrew has come to, to sport with me. And she accused him of that and threw him in prison and, and that. And the idea of the Hebrews being, well, those are the, those are the crossover-overs. Those are, they belong on the other side of the river, right? We've, I guess we've got a similar attitude here. We've got the, the, the crossover-overs. They, they belong south of the Rio Grande. What are they doing north of the Rio Grande, as it were? And it's just a, it's a, it's a human uh, us-versus-them mentality that says... You belong over there, okay? Anyway, that's the concept. But passing over, and it's used twice. 
Um, so avoid it, do not pass by it, turn away from it, and pass on. In fact, go the other way, pass the other way. Put the river between you and the temptation. Stay on the side of the tracks you belong on. And why does this happen five different times? So do not enter, do not proceed, avoid, do not pass by, turn away, pass on six actually, six different uh, directional directives. Again and again and again and again. You don't want to be on that road. If you find yourself on that road, don't proceed. Because the longer you stay on that road, the harder it is to get off of it. You realize, I mean, you get down that path. Don't get me wrong, you can confess any time, but once you're quite a ways down that road, how far is it since you've made that turn off the right path? It's a long way to come crawling back. And so we see it there, all right? Secondly now, the path of the wicked is compulsive. The path of the wicked is compulsive. And sometimes you find a, yourself or your sister or your brother or somebody is in sin and you think, goodness, what were you thinking? Probably weren't. All right? It probably wasn't a matter of thinking. It was a matter of compul- uh, not compulsion. You had a choice. You made decisions. But the nature of our humanity and the nature of wickedness is that it becomes compulsive, okay? And, and is, the, is the difference between that clear? We're not under compulsive, uh, compulsion. We're not forced to do anything. But it is compulsive, habit-forming, addictive. Maybe addictive is a better term, so I don't contrast it with compulsion. We're not forced. No, I do like compulsive, okay? Because if we allow ourselves to be compelled... It's we let it. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. If you do, then you have permitted the compulsion. You have permitted the compulsion. I think before the fall, humanity was designed to be very um, loyal. We're in the image of God. God is faithful. Okay. Addiction is just, uh, is just a fallen faithfulness. <laughs> right? If you're addicted to something, you're faithful to it. You go back to it again and again and again. The dog goes back to its vomit. The sinner goes back to its sin. The addict goes back to their addiction. Just the fallen nature of what has, what has been perverted and what God designed us to be faithful. He designed us to be loyal. He designed us to have the right kind of habits, the right kind of patterns in some respects. So let's look at this here. What does it say? It says... Um, verse 16, they cannot sleep unless they do evil. They cannot sleep unless they do evil. I mean, it, it has physiological effects. It's, it's controlling their life. It controls how they think. It, it, it shapes their, their patterns. You know, look at, look at David waking up at the crack of sundown, okay? Because he's been sleeping all day. Sleeping off the hangover from last night's party or whatever, you know. And, and why is it as the sun was setting that he's just rolling out of bed and getting ready for his next night of carousing and, and whatever else happens there? They cannot sleep unless they do evil. They can, uh, we'll talk about the compulsive nature of this, how it, it feeds itself and how even, even getting away from it, there's a, there's a, a sense that something's missing. What am I missing, you know? 
and not only myself doing it, but influencing other people to do it as well. They are robbed of sleep unless they make someone else stumble. Not only do they want to engage in this activity, they want to rope other people into it as well. They've got to get partners in crime. <laughs> right? Kind of hard to fornicate by yourself. You need a partner in that. It takes two to tango, right? Why, why do we have those, why do we have those, those uh, idioms, those expressions? And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a druggie, you can find a dealer. And he'll be glad to help you in your, in your process. Because he's got to fund his process. Okay? Whatever the sin happens to be, you will always find a partner, a helper. And what we saw in Isaiah 31 last Sunday was that God judges the helper and the helped. Both parties in the process come under the hand of God's judgment for the sin that's achieved. So, uh, they cannot sleep unless they do evil. They are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. Um, this, is the, this is the compulsive nature of this kind of sin. And it's not the only text that deals with it. Look at what uh, Psalm 36 is dealing with. Psalm 36 and verse 4. Psalm 36 and verse 4. whole context of this, I guess verses 1 through 4. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. You've got a no good thing inside of you and, and Satan can work in that and he can speak to that. There is no fear of God before his eyes for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. You know, at a certain point, he just is so in love with his own sin pattern that even exposure is no big deal anymore. Okay, you caught me. Concerning the discovery of his iniquity and hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. It just never stops. 24 hours a day, he's either doing the sin or he's thinking about new ways to do it. He's <laughs> thinking about uh, other things he can do to, to proceed. Remember this, this frantic search for happiness just goes downhill and downhill and downhill and downhill. And if he's not actively doing the sin, he's, he's plotting, thinking, planning wickedness on his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. And you see how compulsive this is. And it's, uh, it becomes controlling. It's like mind control. It's like you've, you've surrendered your faculties to this sin pattern. Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There's a good verse for the floods of this week, right? (laughs) You know, but you talk about turmoil. You talk about a life that's just tossed and and raging and noisy and crashing, and when does it stop? It can't stop. It can't stop. They they are given over. I think this is why in in Romans, you got the three times in Romans chapter 1, it says, therefore God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. And when you're this far down the path, it's, it's, that's where your mind goes. 
There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. It never stops. In fact, it just gets worse and worse and worse. If you know anything about addictions, you need more of it. Your fixes, you need more, and the, the time in between gets shorter and shorter, and the crashes get harder and harder. I'm not just talking drugs and alcohol. All sin patterns. All sin patterns. That's the nature of spiritual enslavement. Micah. Well, here returns to Micah. Well, Micah's the contemporary of Isaiah, so I'm not surprised here. Micah chapter 2. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. There we go. Woe to those who scheme iniquity. Remember, you're already carnal before you ever do the deed because you've been planning it. You've been wanting to do it. You've been thinking about it. Jesus said, if you're looking at a woman with lust after her in your heart, you've already committed the sin in your heart. Micah's saying the same thing here. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. Like I say, if they're not actively involved in their sin pattern, they're thinking about it. They're dreaming about it. They're planning for the next one. Right? I used to have coworkers that were just living for the weekend, and Monday through Thursday was just, can't wait till Friday comes, can't wait till Friday comes. And then, man, boom, here we are, Friday. Let's hit it. You know, and Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days, all things they're doing, okay? Law enforcement officers, some of the most immoral people I ever met in my life. And, uh, but they're, and they're the law-abiding ones, theoretically. And then, and then Monday morning is the time to compare notes. And, you know, how did you do? How did you do? What was your weekend like? What was your weekend like? And generally it was counting. Anyway, I better stop. Um... When morning comes, they do it. Now, here's the thing. If your mind has been in the gutter all those hours, all those days, and blah, 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 and you're, you're planning this, you're planning that, you're dreaming about this, you're dreaming about that, well, then when the, the, the occasion finally comes, it is no longer even a volitional test at that point. You've already failed that volitional test. You've already surrendered your will to the will of, of your flesh. It's, it's, it's a no, uh, no questions asked kind of a thing. Here's the opportunity. Boom, let's do it been planning it, been wanting to do it. You're carnal anyway, and then, and then the choice gets made. It says in verse 2, they covet fields, then seize them, and houses, and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Okay, It's not all just the, the physical immorality here, it's everything. It's the, it's the, the pursuit of, of wealth, it's career advancement. It's uh, everything in, in bios life, and in uh, earthly life that comes into focus. Second Peter chapter 2. And I put verse 14 there, but really it's the whole chapter. It's the whole paragraph. Second Peter chapter 2. And the sad thing is, is these aren't the, uh, the, all those bad people that never go to church. These are churchgoers, Bible teachers, leaders in the ministry. Now, a true believer would never do that. Well, false prophets also arose among the people. What were they passing themselves off as? Real prophets. Just as false teachers among you. What do they pass themselves off as? Real teachers, Bible teachers. See, they don't have business cards that say, hi, I'm a false prophet. They pass themselves off as a real prophet. They pass themselves off as a real pastor. 
okay, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Just attitudes, philosophies, mindsets starts to start to creep in, and certain things start to get tolerated. Nah, that's okay. Even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and that's our culture in this day and age. Many will follow their sensuality. Look at that. These are the flocks where the, the, the business is booming. Many follow their sensuality. I didn't say you know one or two malcontents or a few stragglers here and there. It says many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Those who take a stand for doctrine, well, they're the ones that, oh, you, you're just judgmental. You're just full of hate. You don't like homosexuals. Blah, 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 blah. The way of the truth will be maligned. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. See, that's the thing. Um, some people get the idea that, well, these guys are thriving. Why aren't they being judged? Why are, why are they still in the ministry? Why, why do they have all the money and all the people and all this stuff? They are being judged. Understand that. We don't live in the stewardship where fire and brimstone starts wiping out our city. We live in the stewardship where God gives us over to the depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. See, God was very merciful to Sodom and Gomorrah. Understand in, the, in, in our stewardship, given over to what we're given over to is, is a far greater wrath. Let me skip on down now. We get a kind of a, a good description of these guys. In verse 10, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Okay? Verse 12, these like unreasoning animals. If your activity is animalistic, what are you really doing? Like unreasoning animals. We're supposed to be reasoning we're supposed to love the Lord our God with our mind, heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're supposed to have a logical work of service. Like unreasoning animals. And I think that's the bulk of churchianity. It's all about the emotions, all about the passions, all about the, the gee whiz and the excitement. And just get the, get the passions all whipped up. Really? Are you thinking that through? Are you cycling doctrine? Are you learning anything? Born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. I hate to break it to you, but that's the destiny of an animal. Okay? Captured and killed. Reviling where they have no knowledge will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. See, they don't mind. That's just the cost of doing business. That's just, that's, that's, well, that's, that's the price you pay. Okay, happy to pay that price. Never mind the fact that my lifestyle is self-destructive. That I just took 40 years off my lifespan. Well, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. It is so flagrant, it's not even, you know, there used to be a closet. There's not even a closet anymore. Hey, it is out in the open. We demand that you celebrate our perversion. Okay? Because there are no... The only perverts are the ones that don't tolerate the perverts. All right? Count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. 
They're not content to just do what they're going to do. They want you to join in what they're doing. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Like I say, they're either actively doing it or they're thinking about it the next time they can. It never stops. Enticing unstable souls. Who's the next victim? Who's the next victim? Who's the next victim? That's what we're going to warn about. That's what Proverbs warn about, warns the young man about. Don't get seduced. Don't, don't believe her when she's flattering you. Don't, don't believe for a minute that you're special. You're the only one. There was a long string of men before you and be a long string after you. So it says here, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. It gets worse. That's why it says, do not proceed. It gets worse. You actually learn, you train, you learn, you get better at your lying, you get better at your sin, you get more efficient at your darkness. Well, you've trained your heart in it. Accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam. That's a great Old Testament example there. The son of Beor who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Let's see. Here's some more descriptions. Verse 17. These are springs without water. A spring should be a good thing. Mist driven by the storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Like I say, it's practically the whole chapter here at this point. Speaking, verse 18 says, Speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires. By sensuality, those, look at this group, those who barely escape. I talk about that a lot. I mention that a lot. We talk about when you have a recovery out of darkness, when we, with the expression, well, I'm out of the woods now. You know, somebody was, you know, they were sick or whatever, but now they're out of the woods, wherever that expression came from. Okay? You're not that far out of the woods. You have barely escaped. I'm glad you've confessed. I'm glad you're in fellowship. I'm glad you're back in church. But it's going to be a long road. You're going to have a, it's going to be a tough recovery. Because right now, you have this description right here. Those who barely escape. And you're a prime target for this group that wants to suck you back into that. Those who barely escape from those who live in error. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. And, and it's, it's, it's up is down, black is white, right is wrong. It is total polar opposites of what the divine viewpoint reality would have you believe. And yet we find ourselves living. Sometimes I wonder, what planet am I on? Did I wake up on Bizarro World someday and now everything is just upside down and backwards? How did this happen? For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Okay? And so you've got to ask yourself, if, if I am so far down this path that I'm now a slave to what Jesus Christ set me free from, <laughs> I need help. I've got to get off this path. I need brothers and sisters praying for me. I need a long, slow recovery, and it's, it's going to be a whole lot of grace over a long period of time. And if you think that, oh, well, a believer could never do this, guess again. Verse 20 says this, they, they are saved. If after they escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome, 
The last state has become worse for them than the first. An unbeliever would be better off than you. Just in terms, I'm not talking about losing salvation or going to hell when you die. I'm talking about right here, right now. The unbeliever at least has components of God's mercy and grace and an opportunity to accept the gospel. But you are a son of God and you're going to come under that hand of judgment because you should know better. He didn't save you so that you could go live like that pagan over there. The last state is worse for them than the first. Sure, you're going to have consequences of your sin and you're going to have divine discipline on top of that. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it. Here's the thing. Better off if you're just an unbeliever in your ignorance. Just do what you're doing as an unbeliever. But having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. As it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit. Okay, this is, you should have known better. And a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Isn't that great? You get a nice clean pig and what is it going to do? It's back to the mud again. But notice how compulsive this is. Notice, again, that eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Never cease from sin. It is, when does it stop? You can't even control it anymore. You have been on that path so often, so long, so frequently, it just now comes, you don't even have to think about it, it's just an automatic, it's a, it's a reflex action. That shows you how far down the road that uh, you've happened to go. Not only is it compulsive, it's also consumptive. What do I mean by that? I mean you eat it and you drink it, you consume it. The path of the wicked is consumptive. You eat it, you drink it, you breathe it, okay? Scripture doesn't use the breathing metaphor, we do. We have idioms that talk about eat, sleep, and breathe something. You know, people that eat, sleep, and breathe baseball, or they eat, sleep, and breathe politics, or, or what have you. It shows you that it's, uh, it's everything in your life. You're consuming it. It sustains you. You find nourishment in it. Or at least you think you do. It's a different kind of nourishment. Back to Proverbs 4, I think it's verse 17. We're supposed to be eating the Word of God. We're supposed to be eating the will of God. Jesus said, I have food to eat you do not know about. My food is to do the will of my Father. Okay? Man shall not live by bread alone. We understand there are positive examples of what we should be eating and can be eating. There are also negative examples in terms of sin and wickedness and unrighteousness and all these things, and they are consumable. You can eat them. I recommend that you don't. All right? So it says, For they eat the bread of wickedness, they drink the wine of violence. Both eating and drinking, it sustains them. They consume it. It consumes them and they consume it. So much so that when you're truly a slave to your addiction, sometimes you forget to eat the real food. <laughs> you know? Well, hmm. You know, we're going to see uh, a man gets reduced to a loaf of bread. And he's got a choice. Well, do I buy a loaf of bread or do I spend my last nickel on, on this uh, other thing? Okay? This drug or this drink or this woman or this sin or whatever it is I'm doing. 
I'm eating the, the bread of wickedness and drinking the wine of violence. And well, you are what you eat, aren't you? Is, is that gonna, how's that going to impact your, your spiritual health? Job 15.16 addresses this. Job 15.16. Now there's a glimmer of truth in this chapter. I mean, the whole chapter is human viewpoint on the part of Eliphaz in condemning Job. Um, But there is a principle here, and I think it reflects on the attitude that the fallen angels have with uh, respect to humanity. Talks about man who drinks iniquity like water. Man who drinks iniquity like water. So, um, verse 14 What is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Look, humanity were fallen, fallen creatures in a fallen world. Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. And I think that's the sour grapes from the fallen angels. Saying, look, if angels don't measure up to God's holiness, you, you dust creatures have even less of a chance. Okay, How much less one who is detestable and corrupt? You're not only you a dust creature, you're a fallen dust creature. All right? Your, 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 your very being is manufactured of, of the material substance of this creation. And uh, if you know anything about physics, it's, it's decaying, right? How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. So there's drinking there in that context. Psalm 14.4, more eating and drinking. You say, you know, what's the big deal about sin? I can just, 1 John 1, 9, right? I can just get back in fellowship and I'm good to go. Well, wait a minute. What did you eat last night? Okay. You ever wake up in the morning regretting what you ate last night? And the indigestion or the consequences or the other manifestations that linger as it works its way through your tract and whatever? Okay, I don't want to get crude this morning, but you have eaten something, and you ate something bad, and there's going to be reminders, okay, for whatever time. All right, you're giggling, so you know what I'm talking about. Here's the sin, all right? And 1 John 1, 9 is not just an immediate make everything better. You're back in fellowship, you're cleansed from all unrighteousness, and you are walking in the light but you will face consequences for what you've done. There, are, there will be discipline from a father to a son. There are, you have eaten something, and it might have been tasty in your mouth, but it's bitter going down, and it, it's uh, wormwood when it reaches your stomach. So Psalm 14, um, Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There's another eating metaphor that talks about the workers of wickedness and what they're doing. Here they're actually eating up, devouring God's people. They're not content to just do their sins. They're not content to just, well, you know, leave me alone. I'll do what I do in the privacy of my own bedroom and blah, blah, blah. No, they're going to put it in your face and their goal is to tear you down. 
eating up my people as they eat bread. And they do not call upon the Lord. The positive example is our Savior in John chapter 4. He told the disciples, I have food to eat you do not even know about. And why did they not know about it? We should know about it. We should know about what we eat. You know, think about, we, we think about the uh, judgment seat of Christ is evaluating our building materials, either gold, silver, precious stones on the one hand or wood, hay, and stubble on the other hand. Let's use the same analogy now and reflect upon what we're eating. Are we eating properly in the spiritual dimension? Are we serving the will of our Father? That is food, at least according to Jesus' description here. And if we're not pleasing our God the Father, we're still eating. It's just we're eating the wrong thing. We're eating on the path of wickedness. We're eating, to, to follow that analogy, that metaphor all the way through, we're eating in the realms of wickedness. So John 4, 32, uh, verse 31 says, Meanwhile the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And then the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? They, they didn't understand what he was talking about. They're all bickering amongst themselves and trying to figure out, you know. They all went into town together, right? Which one of you snuck out early to bring the teacher an apple? <laughs> Which one of you snuck out here early and brought him food? You know, who's, who's, the, who's the teacher's pet? Who's the one trying to earn special favors? No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Did you? Did you? I figure it was probably John, one of those sneaky ones, right? And Jesus said to them, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now the corollary is John 8. You desire to do the deeds of your father. Your father was a liar from the beginning, a murderer from the beginning. The corollary is you are of your father the devil. And you can eat in both metaphors. You can eat in both capacities, serving whichever father. Okay? We want to serve God the Father. We want to be eating properly. That sustains us. Doing the will of God is spiritually nourishing. It is sustaining. But doing the, the will of darkness is detrimental because you're consuming, you're consuming the very wickedness that, uh, that you're engaged in. It has the effect upon your soul. Finally then, this middle portion of Proverbs 4 concludes with a pair of similes. So point F, the middle portion of Proverbs 4 concludes with a pair of similes. This is like, that is like. We have the similes here. Like we would have with uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount or any of his other uh, the similitudes that we have from the Gospel of Matthew. Proverbs 4, verses 18 and 19. How many times did Jesus say, the kingdom of heaven is like? Right? Well, here we have, uh, the path of the righteous is like. The path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn. Which means it's not very bright to start with. Okay? It starts off a little dim, but you can see a little bit of it. And then it's going to grow, and then it's going to grow, and then it's going to grow. So you want to stay on that path long enough to reach the full brightness of it. 
the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Until the full day, see. Sadly, though, a lot of Christians don't stay on the path long enough to get to the full broad daylight. They visit occasionally. They, they hop on the path every so often. But uh, they're off that path quicker than they can get on, you know, as quick as they can because they got that other path they want to get on. That one gets darker and darker, I think, is the corollary on this. The way of the wicked is like darkness. Okay, now does darkness, is, does darkness fall absolutely as soon as the clock ticks, uh, you know, sundown tonight is at 8.35 p.m.? Does that mean at 8.36 p.m. it's going to be just absolute total darkness? No, it grows, it gets darker and darker and darker until the, 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 dark, the fullness of the darkness. So the way of the wicked is like darkness, and they do not know over what they stumble. They do not know over what they stumble. So at least if the, if the light is still partial, or there's, they're not that long into the darkness, they might still have, uh, you know, you, you go into a room and you kind of look around and you see where things are, you turn off the light, you still got an image in your mind of where the furniture was, how the room was laid out. Um, you know, the light just barely got turned off. You still got memory of how things looked when you had the light. How long does that last? All right, how long does that last? When do you reach the point now when you're in such darkness, you can't even remember what was it that was on the floor there? It tripped me up and I can't remember what it was. And I'm the one that put it there. <laughs> right? That's the, I think that's the sadness of this. So, the light shines brighter and brighter, and the darkness produces ignorant stumbling. That's the worst part of all. They don't even know what it is they stumble over. They should know. They should know. When the light was on, they knew what it was. God's light shines brighter and brighter the longer we proceed on the path of righteousness. Now, I think that the personal application of this is obvious, and I described it already, and I think we can understand that. There's also, I think, and different pastors have taught this over the years, a dispensational application that should also be considered. That, in other words, we know we have more light in the church than Israel had. Israel had more light than the dispensation of the Gentiles had. The Gentiles had more light than the angels had in their stewardship. Okay, The millennium will have more light than we have. Because they're going to have prophetic revelation in the tribulation and in the millennial kingdom. Ultimately, the fullness of time will have the maximum amount of light of, of all the stewardships. The new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. The thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ will have the maximum amount of light. And that's why the fullness of times is called, sometimes it's referred to as the perfect day. The full day. Okay? In fact, does the King James on this say the perfect day? Somebody has an old King James, right? No? Okay. I think there, there was a, a King James rendering on this, the perfect day or the full day. Shines brighter and brighter until the, the perfect day, the full day. So obviously the metaphor applies to us personally. The longer we're on the path, the brighter our day is getting. Uh, until you know we're walking in the in the full broad daylight of, of walking with the Lord. Clearly, that's the personal application. I think too, though, that we should consider the dispensational uh, application also, and be thankful for it.
I don't know about you, I wouldn't trade the church age for anything. I'm glad we live in the age that we live in. To be the bride of Christ, to be positionally in Christ. Are you kidding? He's the heir of all things. And I'm fellow heirs with him. Man, that's uh, that's something else. All right, well, that gets us through verse 19. We'll come back uh, next week and be ready for verses 20 through 27, the final portion here of chapter 4. My son, back to singular again. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart. All right? You've had a few good days. You've had a few good weeks. Stick with it. Stick with it. Don't give up on it. Don't think that, well, I've done enough. There's no such thing as good enough. Okay? We're forgetting what lies behind. We're reaching forward to what lies ahead. And that's uh, what we'll talk about here. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your faithfulness, for all your grace. We thank you for uh, your hand of blessing and protection upon the members of this congregation. There's been so much flooding and loss of life, but Father, you, uh, you are faithful and you have hedged us about and we thank you for that. Continue to provide and sustain. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.